Our Father, what a delight it is to have read your word given to us, your living word, your eternal word. Generations have come and gone, and you have done your work of salvation. You have done your work of sanctification, of encouragement, correction, training, exhortation, enlightenment. All of these works of your word continue through the ages, and when all flesh passes away, your word still stands. And we delight in the certainty of what is revealed to us in the pages of this book that reveals to us Christ, that reveals to us our future. And we thank you for opening our eyes uh, to see these glories, to see your glories, to see the glory of Christ. And we pray as we open your word now that you, Holy Spirit, would fulfill your ministry and be our teacher, and that you would reveal to us wisdom, ultimately is you reveal to us the glory of Christ, which is where everything leads to us, leads. We pray as we prepare to hear the testimony of your saving grace in the water of baptism that, that you would encourage our hearts again, as you do each time we hear these testimonies of the wonder of grace, the miracle of regeneration and salvation, calling out of death life in your son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And as you're getting there, before we actually get into the sermon, I want to first address uh, publicly um, something that came to my attention this week. Well, I, I first, even before I do that, want to express again that I did earlier this week say my gratitude to everyone. I know that as we deal with all of the complexities and the inconsistencies and the things that uh, we have to work through related to COVID and to mask and to policies and, and all of that stuff. And more importantly, uh, to understand what the will of God is in terms for his, uh, for his church and how we are to relate to the authority that he has placed over us and how we are to do that in a way that honors him and that honors Christ, not according to our own will, but his will, which again is revealed in the pages of scripture. And so that's our starting place, not, not us and what we think. Uh, so I just want to say that it has been just a warming to my heart to see the attitude of us as a church and how we live together in an understanding way with each other, how we uh, work through these things uh, together. And that was the intent of the email. It did come to my attention, however, that at least some took the email that was sent out as being a silent rebuke to those who are struggling with this and maybe not wanting to wear the mask. I can simply say that that thought never entered into my mind before uh, it was brought to my attention that some felt that way. So if you did, I can only say that I'll be more careful to be cognizant of how that could be taken in the future. But what I also want to remind us of as we work through these things is that this, this whole issue, as, as everything is really, uh, that would threaten unity is in fact a test of the Lord. The greatest mark of the reality of the life of God, the spirit of Christ within his people is our unity that is founded on our love. Paul says in Colossians, we'll get this later, that love is the perfect bond of unity. It is in love that we learn to forgive. It is in love that we're patient with one another. It's in love that we don't take into account wrong suffered. It's in love that we deny ourselves in order to serve and to be a blessing to other people. And so I want to remind us too as we think through these things that there is much more that I would want to say, but I want to just make this simple point as we begin that this is 
a spiritual battle. All of the life is a spiritual battle in our modern culture and with all of the the fruit of the enlightenment. We almost act as if uh, these spiritual realities behind what we can see were some leftover of paganism in a bygone era before we became so much more intellectual and intelligent. But in fact, scripture makes clear to us that it is not only what we see and do in this world, but there are spiritual realities behind this and scripture itself draws us into this. And so I want to remind you of just two passages as we think through how we work through this together. The first is, and you're familiar with both of them, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, the methods of the devil, the intentions of the devil, the well-organized and purposeful works of the devil to destroy what God has accomplished. For our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then if you'll remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul addressing an issue of some who had sided with false teachers and one particular who had uh, caused distress for the apostle in maligning his ministry. He wrote them a letter. There was repentance. And then there was this brother who had sinned, who was uh, being... Well, there was the potential that he was to be uh, treated harshly by the rest of the congregation. And so Paul writes, and he writes of his forgiveness. He writes to appeal to them for forgiveness. And he says this, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And what were his schemes is to cause division within the church. And so as we work through these things, as we learn to love one another, as we learn to live with one another, as we learn to have different opinions, we need to remember that there is also a spiritual battle behind that in which there is an opponent of all that is good and righteous and holy and good and beautiful that wants to cause division. But we have one greater in us, namely the Spirit of God and the truth of God. And so we want to just remember that as we work through these things. But I wanted to say that publicly, not in an email I think that would be more effective. Now, with that being said, let's look at Ecclesiastes as we prepare to hear this testimony of baptism. We're first going to jump back in where we left off in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse 10, and I'll read down to verse 3, or excuse me, uh, verse 10 of chapter 9, and read down to verse 3 of chapter 10, and then we'll look at this together. Chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. And neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favored to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. Moreover... Man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, And he delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner 
destroys much good. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. And so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. And even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking. He demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Well, the title of this section I've said is that unsung wisdom is better than foolishness. Unsung wisdom is better than foolishness. And the general idea of this passage, there's, I suppose, different ways you could summarize this, but the general idea of the passage is essentially that wisdom, although governed by providence, proves itself to be better in the end. Wisdom, although governed by providence, that is ultimately in the hands of God and the fruits of it, always proves to be better in the end. And so let's look at first then, we'll look at this under a few headings as he unfolds this, and we'll note then that wisdom is limited under providence. Wisdom is limited under providence, under the purposes of God, under the providence of God. Look back at verse 11. After commending hard work in verse 10, I read that just for context, that's a transition verse, he goes immediately into verse 11 and, he, uh, 11, and he says, I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to warriors, neither is bread to the wise, and so forth, for time and chance overtake them all. And so Solomon is here continuing to accentuate the fact that he's been building and illustrating all throughout Ecclesiastes, namely that God's sovereign purposes reign over the purposes of men. God is sovereign over all that he has made. It's God's purposes that stand in the end, not man's purposes. And so the key idea really is that whether there is success or no success, it all lies in the hand of God, not the effort of men. Now to say that, however, can lead to some kind of confusion. For the reality is that God has created a moral universe. He has created a universe which operates on cent- uh, uh, principles that are inviolable, that are a part of his creation, is a part of his creation of man in his image. So that is certainly true. And in these universal principles, it is usually the case that diligence, strength, discernment, wisdom are means to achievement, security, success, while laziness, uh, an impulsiveness, a lack of diligence, a lack of wisdom, and so forth lead to negative results. This is clear in Scripture. Solomon has made this clear in many other places. Just listen as I read to you a sampling of some of the ways he explains this in the book of Proverbs. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The hand of the diligent will rule in Proverbs 12, 24, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. 21, 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Of the wise woman, in Proverbs 31, he says in verse 17, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong, and later strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. Why? Because she is prepared, she is planned, she has worked hard, she's exercised wisdom. Proverbs 20:18, prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. And yet, in light of all of that, even in Proverbs, he reminds us in Proverbs 16:9 that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And again in Proverbs 19:21, many are plans in the man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. 
And so there it is, this sort of paradoxical relationship. And we have to understand just the nature of proverbial wisdom, particularly in, in Scripture. These are, these are general characteristics. These are, according to God's moral universe, how things generally work out. But what Solomon keeps reminding us is that yet there is something greater than that, and that is the purposes of God. And so there is wisdom. There is certainly consequences to our actions, but ultimately the fruit lies in the hands of God. That is to say, then, the certainty and stability of this rule that hard works produces success and so forth is not grounded in necessity from a human perspective as if God were under obligation to reward our hard work with the results that we want from it, but rather that in grace and in mercy, there he has determined what is wise for our life, which can often contradict what we expect. Sometimes that means the fruit of our hard work can actually end in frustration rather than success. And so there is uncertainty of life. There is the uncertainty of death that he mentioned in chapter 9 and in other places, but we looked at last week. In other words, that regardless of one is wicked or righteous, whether one is clean or unclean ceremonially, whether one is obedient or disobedient, all face the reality of death. And he seems to put that at least as a, a part of that uncertainty of life here in verse Uh, 11, that time and chance overtake them all. He already mentioned his teaching on time back in chapter 3. That includes life and includes death. And who knows when it will come. Death can overtake someone at the least opportune moment and the least expected moment. And there's the uncertainty of its appearing. I, many illustrations could give of this. The one I, I often think of is in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 34. Don't turn there, but there was a, a king, essentially, who went out to, and he went uh, undercover, and he was going to disguise himself in battle to preserve his life. And the scripture tells us, after, because it had been prophesied that he would die, it says, Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. And so he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded. He thought his planning, he thought his scheming would overturn the purposes of God. In fact, it did not and he still died by a man who had no intention that God was using that randomly shot arrow to achieve his purposes. The idea, of course, is not limited to death, but in the evil under the sun... As he is fond of saying, evil meaning really just emphasizing the fact that these things are the fruit of a fallen creation, of a world that is groaning under the weight of sin. Any untimely turn of events is always just around the corner. Again, time and chance overtake them all. Again, this isn't a desire, denial of God's sovereignty to say that. It is, in fact, an affirmation of it. He's simply looking at reality from the ground up or from ground zero, that is, from a human perspective, and saying life is unpredictable. It can happen negatively as the king struck in his armor by a random bow that was shot by someone on the battlefield. It can happen positively. There are turn of events in our favor that we are, cannot plan for. One of my favorite Old Testament books, if you can say that, it's kind of odd to say a favorite book, it's all the Word of God, but one that I find myself uh, often going to is the book of 1 Samuel. And I love 1 Samuel, and one thing that always impresses me about it is that uh, there, in a way that at least that strikes me, is always this very intimate portrayal of the sovereignty of God and the details as you read through the book. And again, that's 
in many other places, Esther and so forth. But this passage stands out. So Saul is a chasing David. David is on the run for his life. And David finds himself, as he does at other times, in a predicament where he's outwitted and he's outnumbered. He really has no escape. And so here he was at a mountainside. And so it says that Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. And so Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines, and therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. Here's David on the run, outnumbered. Saul's army was going to overtake him. Unbeknownst to David, God had a plan of deliverance by getting a mess. Saul getting a message from the Philistines, taking him away. David is spared. The point is, is that Saul's superior armies, Paul, Saul's superior position of strength ultimately was derailed by the sovereign purposes of God. And conversely, David's position of weakness, militarily speaking, was given protection by the sovereign purposes of God as he sent Saul away. And so it is. Time and events come and change things and we can't really plan on them and that plan on them and that is the point. Just think of the massive effects of the situation of COVID-19 in a world now over a year later under the conditions of what is described as a pandemic. Think of the fortunes that were overturned, family family uh, conditions that have were disrupted. Children all of a sudden at home and not allowed into the school. Jobs that were moved from the office into the home and all the conditions that come with that. Fortunes that rose and fortunes that fell because of it. It was something that could not be planned on. They're just the way things go. People who maybe were going to start a business just right when the pandemic hit all of a sudden found themselves with everything working against them. Though they may have had the best laid plans leading up to that point. Someone who just began to make a profit all of a sudden is making a loss and so forth. Just think of the history of your own life. Just think of the plans that you have laid throughout all of your days that were reversed, that went in the opposite direction. All of us can identify with that. And that's Solomon's point. That while there is the reality that wisdom is better, which he'll illustrate in a moment, while the race usually does go to the swift, while the strong usually do come out on top, it's not always the case, and we simply can't plan on it. One, God may take you out by death. Two, there may be circumstances that change that we have no power over. And so the mark of wisdom, in light of this, is to have the humility to trust and to yield to God to submit to his will for life. This means that we are to make plans, we are to prepare for the future, and there's nothing wrong with having dreams and goals and desires and anticipation and hopes for our life and things that we work for. That's not his point. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, he, he says that is part of the advantage and the wisdom of being in this world. He says in verse 10, for there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. In other words, those are the things of this creation. Those are the things that we should be doing here. They're right and they're good but they have their limitation. This is a normal part of life, of course, to plan for the future. It's even a part of being made in the image of God and a part of our subduing creation is that we think of the future, we plan. We want to bring things about by our hard work. These things are good in themselves. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that when we have these dreams and these goals without reference to God's control over our lives and his purposes for our life, that's where the problem comes in. That's where we end up getting frustrated overly discouraged, overly despondent when things don't go our way. 
It's fine to plan and it's fine to have purposes and it's fine to expect things in the future, but there are two conditions of our heart that must attend that. And one is this, that as we think of the future and our plans, that it's attended with gratitude and ultimately the end isn't merely our pleasure and our advantage, but rather the service of God, how we fulfill his purposes for his kingdom, how we fulfill his will. That it's not merely self-centered planning, but it is ultimately planning that recognizes that whatever comes, it is to be ultimately for the advantage of the kingdom, not only our own lives. And secondly, that as we plan for the future, we ultimately are submitted to the will of God, for he knows what is best for us and for his glory. And we yield to that. This is exactly the point, part of the point in James, a passage we're familiar with. Let me just remind you of it. James chapter 4, he says this, Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Again, nothing sinful about that. That's good. It would be foolish to go into a place. It would be foolish to make plans. It would be foolish to have a business adventure and not to have thought ahead and prepared. That's not the issue. He says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. The boasting there is the idea that the success will come by our intention, our plans. It is without reference to God. One said this, as we rep- he says, as we grow up, we, re- we replace our childhood dreams of being a ballerina or a firefighter with hopes of an apprenticeship or a degree and a job and a husband and children and a house in a certain part of town with a big dining room where people can come and go and laugh and eat and talk together. You might simply long to grow old happily with your family and grandchildren around you. Ecclesiastes says maybe you will do all these things or maybe you'll be dead before the year ends. Maybe you'll never get that job. Maybe you'll get married and have kids, but never the house you want. Can you see what the preacher is saying to us? Put your faith in something else that is not under the sun, because one event under the sun might change all of your best laid plans, for man does not know his time. And that is the point here, is that we don't know, and so we are to live wisely when we live under the sovereign hand of God. Although being wise then does not guarantee success or freedom from problems, this is part of God's jurisdiction, however, wisdom is an advantage. He said back in chapter 2, I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness And yet I know one fate befalls them all. So wisdom is better. Wisdom does excel folly, but wisdom is no guarantee. But he emphasizes the better part with an illustration beginning in verse 13. And here's the second point. Wisdom does have advantage in difficulties. And he gives a parable or a story. It could be taken either way. Most likely it is a story, an account of of an actual event. But in either case, the point remains the same. Beginning in verse 13, he says, Although this I came to see his wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. It made an impact on me. I remembered it. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered that poor man. And here he simply makes 
The point again, that having acknowledged that wisdom is not a guarantee for earthly success, yet it does have advantages. It does bring advantages in life, if not honor. It may lack the honor that it deserves and the recognition, but it still brings about good. And so he sets it up. He says, here's an impossible situation. There is a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it. In other words, this small city was no match for the power of this great king. There were siege works laid up against it, in which there was seemingly no escape from the intentions of the ruler who wanted to destroy those who were in the city. It's a picture of a hopeless situation in which the usual instruments of war would be, or were not available. They weren't available. It was a few men in a small city. There was no way they could match the great army of this king. So bereft of any strength, of arms and military might, the little city is in desperate need of something greater, not physical power, but wisdom. And this wisdom was to be found in what, according to human estimation, was an unlikely source, a a poor man. That could also be taken as someone who is simply a commoner in contrast to the elite, but Poor is the good idea here. The idea, either way, is one who was despised, one who was not recognized, one of whom men esteemed very little and were not looking to for some kind of answer or deliverance. And it is possible, I put on a note in case uh, you come across this, that some take this phrase as a poor wise man who might have delivered the city in his wisdom. But that's not as likely here. It's more likely in the context that he's speaking of one who actually did deliver the city. If you'll notice the end of verse 15, no one remembered that poor man, which only makes sense if he'd actually accomplished the thing that uh, he is said here to have done. And also it makes sense of his statement later that wisdom is better than weapons of war. In either case, it is the wisdom of this man then who brought advantage to the city. Now, there's no, again, implication that the rulers were searching for the wise man or whether the wise man just asserted himself in his wisdom and went to the rulers or whether the leaders just happened upon him or whether he simply acted on his own. None of those details are the point. The point is, is that wisdom proved to be the greatest advantage in this situation. That's the simple point. Now, in an ultimate sense, as a footnote here, the wisdom, whatever the practical application of it was here, was the fruit of God's providence. And the greatest wisdom, according to biblical truth, is to act in trust in God when the circumstances are beyond our control, when they exceed our abilities. Let me just give you one example. There's, of course, many that we could go to. But in Deuteronomy chapter 20, he reminds his people... And remember, this would be particularly important to his people before they're entering into the land of Canaan. Well, you'll remember before they had failed to enter in because of acting out of fear of what seemed to be threatening armies that would have destroyed them. And so he says this to them, Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. Why? Wouldn't that be a natural response to be afraid because they are greater, because they are more powerful, because they have a greater advantage over us? But he says, no, for this is the reason you should not be afraid. The Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. He is with you. God is your deliverer. God is the one who brings you out of the impossible situation. And God accentuates that to us and to his people continually uh, throughout the history of man and certainly throughout the Old Covenant. He gives his people wisdom. 
He fights for his people. He ultimately is the one who is the deliverer. And we won't turn there for time's sake, but he doesn't disparage the fact that there's, again, planning. There's a come up with a, a game plan against to go this enemy, but ultimately it is from God, Proverbs 24. But the lesson learned here is this. In verse 16, wisdom is better than strength. That's the point. Whether the person is honored or not, the fact is the city was delivered and all benefited, including the poor man. He benefited just as well. Wisdom didn't bring him honor, but wisdom is always better because of its own sake. Because wisdom functions in line with the will of God. And yet the tragedy here, again, is this. That it's not honored by men. Men don't esteem the wise. And so he says, they despised, he was despised, and his words are not heeded. That is, that even though he brought about a great victory, he's put off to the side and he's no longer attended to again. He's not given a place of honor or respect because of his wisdom. He is quickly forgotten. And there he says in verse 17, the words of the wise heated in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. That heated in quietness could be that he said it in quietness or is heard in quietness, but the contrast is the same in either case. That is, the silent effect of wisdom is set against the foolishness and the self-aggrandizing and the pride of rulers who like to honor themselves, even though they demonstrate an inability to accomplish the same victory that this poor wise man did. The world, however, gravitates towards the loud and the self-promoting. Don't we see that all the time? The world gravitates towards the shouting ruler. The one who is the loudest is the one and acts the most confident is the one generally who can get a crowd to follow them, even though they might be the foolish ones. That's just how it works. And this is how it is. The shouting of the ruler among fools unfortunately demonstrates much of what we see among our rulers. But let's go ahead to the third point that he makes here. Wisdom's precariousness because of foolishness. And this is really what I want to get to. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And here it is. But one sinner destroys much good. One sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. And even when the fool walks along the road, he shows he has no sense, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. And this is an important lesson. Wisdom is most precious. Wisdom does bring advantages. Wisdom is to be preferred. Wisdom does bring advantage not only in the success it can bring externally, but also in the peace that it brings internally to the one who's walking according to the will of God and experiences the fruit of wisdom with everyone else. But this wisdom, as much as its value is superior to foolishness, is also precarious, it's vulnerable. It's subject to be overturned, to be ruined. And that is his point here. Let us still not put too much confidence in that and be warned. And it brings us to a vital point that is often missed in the Christian life, actually. Let me begin by just giving a quote that I think brings this point out well. 
He says, one does, it is vital to know the difference between wisdom and folly. Most Christians can distinguish good and evil from evil, and we know that some things are morally right while others are morally wrong. And so we try to do the right things instead of the wrong things. This kind of thinking is fine as far as it goes. The trouble, however, is that some of the most important choices in life are not between good and evil, but between wisdom and folly. And so there's something very different between merely morally good and morally evil as opposed to what is wise and to what is foolish. Christian maturity is marked by the more we understand wisdom. It takes very little insight, really. Even an unbeliever can distinguish to some level between morally right and morally wrong. That's less and less so in our culture, granted. But still, it's within man. It's within the capability of man, still carrying the image of God within them, to make a moral distinction between what is right and what is wrong. Wisdom, however, is far more precious and far more difficult to attain and to put into practice. I think the first is then, and this is true in light in sanctification. It's not enough simply to discern between morally good and morally evil, but wisdom and maturity can go deeper than that and to say, what is the effect of these choices that I make? What is the consequence of these? Where is this leading me? What is the overall direction that this choice will lead me? And to discern at that level is the mark of wisdom. Wisdom, not merely you can think of that. You have children. You go through this too in our own lives. This is a little footnote here. Is you can think of like, you can say, well, the show wasn't bad because it didn't have a, you know, an explicit scene in it. There was no nudity. But the question is, but what is it teaching about marriage and fidelity? What is it teaching about love and honor? There were no vulgar words in it, but what was it saying about greed and dishonesty? Was it pragmatic in saying the ends justify the means? In other words, it takes wisdom. We have to look beyond the crass to deeper things. But here he says, wisdom is an advantage, but we have to be aware as well that it is precarious and it is vulnerable. And he gives an illustration, an illustration that's graphic. He said, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. If there were 100 gallons of good and premium perfume, it would take only a few small dead, or this could be taken as poisonous flies, to ruin it all. We know if you're at a party outside, one fly in the punch bowl makes the whole thing to most uh, undrinkable, right? Who wants it? That's the idea here. In this way, then, the little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. In other words, the fruit of wise labor, which can take sacrifice and integrity, built through much effort and over many years, can be destroyed in a moment and corrupted by foolishness. He made that point earlier in Ecclesiastes when he talks about somebody who during their lifetime uh, was wise in the way that they conducted themselves. They, they build up for themselves a measure of wealth, a, a family, and then the next generation comes and by foolishness ruins it all. Can do that, do so in a moment. One said, all it takes is one rash word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure, one angry outburst to spoil everything. About 170 years earlier, a writer said this, commenting on the same passage, the unguarded moment, the hasty word, the irritable temper, the rudeness of manner, the occasional slip, the supposed harmless eccentricities, all tend to spoil the fragrance of the ointment. You can build up so much in terms of 
seeking to live righteously and wisely. And don't we all know that one stupid word said at a wrong moment can ruin so much and be a great challenge to overcome? A moment of foolish. That's his idea here. It's not unlike the tongue. I'll just mention this. The tongue in James chapter 3, 6. A great forest is set on fire by just a small flame. A small rudder destructs a great, uh, uh, directs a great ship. A little bit in a horse's mouth leads such a strong and a powerful animal. It doesn't take much. It doesn't make, take much. And we need to be careful. Paul says the same thing in terms of how we allow sin in our midst. And this applies to our own lives as well. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says a little leaven, a little leaven ruins the whole lump. If sin isn't checked in our life, if sin isn't checked in the midst of the church, it simply grows and it festers and it corrupts and it can ruin the whole. How much in a, in a body in which there is maturity and good that one person through faction, this faction being faction, prone towards factions, who is corrupts with wrong teaching can ruin so much that is laid, that is good. So here it is in the context of Solomon, largely looking and, uh, towards government, towards the kind of rulers, to the, to the kind of influences that enter into the highest places of authority within the society, but the principle plays out through all of man's life. It only takes a little bit of foolishness to ruin what is good. Therefore, we should be diligent. We must be diligent. We must be diligent as an individual Christian. We must be diligent as a body of Christians. We must be diligent with our lives. One, Charles Bridges, writing in the 1800s, says this. It was interesting. He's the only one that I saw ask this question. He said, how did the fly come into the ointment? How do we avoid this then is the question. He says, is it, is it not when prayer and diligence are neglected that little inconsistencies are allowed, such as small, imperceptibly, that, that such as almost imperceptibly destroy the savor of holiness? In other words, this applies to our life. We reach a place where we feel fairly secure in our sanctification and truth, and so we allow a little compromise, a little compromise, a little easing up of spiritual disciplines, a little unguardedness of our thoughts, a little slip in our affections that contains more and more and more divergence from God's ways. And so here he says in verse 2 that it really then is about what goes on in the inside of man. Verse 2, a wise man's heart then directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. And even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Of course, the emphasis here is not on direction, but right or left serve as metaphors for what is good or bad, wise or foolish. This is common in scripture. Just to not give you a list, but you're familiar with such statements as Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It is a place of honor. It is a place of wisdom. It is a place of power. It is a place of strength. Conversely, the left is often used to speak of the opposite. We can think again of Christ's return, and he sets the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. Now, I have to put a note here because I have two Southpaws in our family uh, that he's not speaking against left-handers, okay, so... Don't take that. As a matter of fact, just for your encouragement, let me tell you of Judges chapter 20, where it says, out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. 
So we're not talking about left-handed people, but he's using here the idea of right or left as it commonly is in Scripture as what is good and bad, wise, foolish, and so on and so forth. And so he's saying basically then, the fool as he conducts himself in life is, is, is directed towards the foolish and the wise towards what is wise and what is good. The basic idea is that they lead in two different directions. And the essential determiner of it is the condition of the heart, and that's where he takes us. He says it's the wise man's heart. It's the foolish man's heart. It's what is within a person that decides which way they go. The heart, just to remind us, we've defined this many times, but is the center of human life, and here I quote, the center of human life, the seat of our thoughts, desires, intentions, and the source of our words and deeds. In other words, it is that part of us out of which flows everything about us. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. It's that inner part of us that we know about, God knows perfectly, that can be concealed from others, but ultimately it shows in our life, especially over the long haul. So here's the idea. The spiritual reality of our heart will be displayed by the choices that we make. That's the idea. The spiritual reality of our hearts will be displayed by the choices we make, the things that we show that we desire, the directions that our heart leans. One said the wise man goes the right way because his heart leans the right way. But the wicked man's heart leans in the opposite direction, which is where he ends up going. Wisdom and folly are inclinations of the heart, and that's the issue. That's why we remind ourselves continually that sanctification is a matter of the heart, our mind. It's what goes on inside of us, not merely external deeds. So... Because it is a matter of a heart, then it cannot be concealed. And so he says, when you walk along the road, you know who's wise and you know who's fool, who's a fool. It's interesting here. He says, his sense is lacking speaking of the fool. It says he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. Again, this is a statement that could be taken in a couple of different ways. It literally says he says, that's translated demonstrate. But the idea is this. It could be taken as this is the fool who's walking along the road. He's calling everybody else a fool and saying they're foolish. Or it could be metaphorically, which is probably the best way to take it, is to say he says, in other words, by the fact that that's what his life communicates. That's what's displayed and shown, and that's why it's translated here as demonstrates. But isn't that interesting? Either one are really true of the fool, which is what he emphasizes here, what do I mean by that? I mean by this. Who is the last person to recognize pride? The proud person, right? Who is the quickest to recognize pride in life is the humble person. The humble person feels the most proud because they're the most sensitive to it and what it means to walk in humility. Who is, who is the wise person, the one who recognizes and is sensitive to the foolishness that still resides in us and we're humbled by it? The fool is the last one to recognize their foolishness. How much do we have to... Does this need illustration? Do we not know this in our own life? The one who is in sin and is hardened in their heart towards it is the one who is the last one to see it. It takes a work of God to reveal it to them. The Spirit of God must reveal to them their foolishness and their pride. The way of the fool, Solomon said in another place in Proverbs 12, 15, is always right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The illustration that immediately came to my mind is a drunk person, right? Have we witnessed that? 
Uh, some of us who maybe were saved out of that can put ourselves in that boat where we, you, if you're sober and you're watching drunk people, the more they drink, the more foolish they act. But in a drunk person's mind, they just think they're suave and debonair. They think they're cool. They think they're funny. They think they're entertaining. They think that whoever they talk to of the opposite sex must be overwhelmingly impressed with them. And yet, if you're looking at it from the outside, you're like, you look like a fool. Man, you look like an idiot. I have been that idiot. I understand, and many of us have been. And that's the idea here. The, the last one to recognize this is the fool themselves, is the proud person themselves, but it is something that everybody else sees immediately for what it is. And so that is the point here. And again, this is why all an issue of the heart, and again, why if we are to grow in holiness, even as was read this morning by Jason, we must guard the mind. We must be sober in our mind. What we read this morning was we set our mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ in whom our life is hidden. It is the work of the Spirit in the inner man that guards us against this. And the Spirit uses and employs the conscience which informed by Scripture searches our inner intentions and our thoughts as it's activated by the Spirit of God as He reveals truth within the believer. And he reveals the glory of Christ. It's there that we must seek to live in truth, to walk in the light, to live authentically and honestly before God. It's that part of us that others cannot see, but I'll tell you what, if sin is allowed to fester in our life, we'll see it eventually. It can't be concealed forever. And that's why we must deal with our thoughts and with our affections. And the truest experience then, this leads us to the fact of a wise person and a foolish person is their response to God. Again, Solomon made that clear. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. What is the beginning of foolishness? Is to say, as he does at the end of chapter 3 of Romans, of that section, or not the whole chapter, but that section there describing the fallenness of man, when he says, he sums it all up, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not fear God. God is not in their thoughts Concern for God's glory, concern for God's holiness, for concern for what pleases God is not at all a concern of theirs. There's no, there's no fear of him and fear of his discipline, fear of his judgment, fear of his word, fear of his ways, fear of his holiness and his glory. No desire to worship him, stand in awe of him, follow his truth. But for the wise person, it's just the opposite. There is that fear of God. And that's demonstrated by the way that they conduct themselves. There is a way which seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. And so wisdom and foolishness, while wisdom has its earthly advantages, runs much deeper than that within the context of biblical wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and foolishness have their ultimate expression then in a person's response to the revelation of God and ultimately to Christ. Somebody can be very earthly wise and an absolute fool. We see that all the time. There's lots of really, really, really smart unbelievers who are foolish, who cannot put two and two together when it comes to looking at the reality of their own life, when it comes to acknowledging even the truth of God's word, God's word and how it matches up with their own life and the world around them. It's not about being smart. It's not about degrees or job. It's not about wealth and influence. It is about one's response to God. That's wisdom and that's foolishness. There's a lot of extremely intelligent people who are forever bemoaning their foolishness 
in their response to God. And here's the last point, and, and we'll make this quickly. Wisdom success, or brings success in the end. Wisdom success sometimes isn't known until the end. In this sense, it's not much of a leap then to understand this as relating directly to the truth of the covenant, to the truth of Scripture, and to the gospel of God in Christ. It's often been noted you could take the idea here and transfer that into the coming of Christ. Christ came into this world, what? Despised and rejected by men. Considered an outcast. Considered a fool. Considered one who was to be despised. There was no honor. There was no glory. There was nothing impressive about him. He can be dismissed with no consequence. He came into the world as one small and weak and despised, forsaken of men. And yet he accomplished the greatest deliverance, far more than a city from a great king. He destroyed the works of the devil. He brought in the kingdom of God. He accomplished what would be the salvation of many and the eternal reward of all of those who trust in him. He purchased the people for his eternal kingdom, though he is forgotten by the world. Christians are the same way. We're the despised of the world, and increasingly so in our culture, more and more the despised of the world. We have generations coming up who have no at an unprecedented rate in the history of America, anyway, who have no connection at all to any kind of religious instruction, even the most basic kind of religious instruction. They have no knowledge of God. It's a completely secular kind of culture, more and more so. There's no reference to God. God, rather than being a foundation of making any sense out of reality, providing any kind of transcendent foundation or stability to a culture and to a people becomes more and more a nuisance and a threat to the ideas of a secular culture, right? And so where wisdom, uh, there Christians stand, considered fools by the world, and yet we proclaim and say that we have a wisdom that everyone needs. It is, in fact, the wisdom of God. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 1. He says this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And yet the world looks at us and says, you fools. And God looks at us and says, you are the display of my wisdom. You are the accomplishment, the demonstration of my wisdom in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this kingdom. And right now, though despised, one day things will be reversed. Though despised now, we will reign with Christ forever. And so the wise are often despised by the world, and ultimately that comes down into one's response to God. And ultimately then that comes down to one's response to Christ. And so whether that means in, in terms of salvation, the question then to you and to me is, are you wise or are you foolish? Are you wise or foolish? What is your response to the revelation of God in Christ and Scripture? Maybe you can think of your life right now and what's going on in your heart and your own walk of sanctification. Do you have some secret sin that you've made friends with that you think you can tame and keep under control? Is there some duplicitous life that you think you can live as long as the people around are impressed with your godliness and your spirituality, but you know there's something very different going on on the inside? The wisdom of God says, 
that's foolishness. But the glory of the gospel is that foolishness can be forgiven when it's brought to the cross. The foolishness, our foolishness and our sin, there meets a savior that is greater than all of it who takes the most foolish and the most downcast, the most rebellious and the most wicked and offers to them grace, forgiveness, hope, wisdom. And we can know that all the treasures of wisdom are found in Christ, in Christ. And our hope is that that wisdom will ultimately be vindicated. If never in this world, it will be in the age to come because we will stand with Christ, we who are in him and Know him forever. And it is this wisdom that we hear the testimony of now in the waters of baptism. God has commanded us as one of the ordinances of the New Testament that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. It is the sign that is to be obediently followed by all who have placed their faith in Christ, who are a part of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in union with Christ, a part of his body and God's people, the ones to whom every promise and scripture of redemption applies. And every time we hear a testimony in the church where I came from, they used, we used to call it, uh, it was called the miracle service. And it was a miracle. Every, every testimony, every testimony is a miracle of God's grace. It is a miracle of one who was dead being brought to life. The miracle of one who was in darkness and having no hope brought to the light of God in Christ and to see his glory. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace. Every name that is proclaimed and every life that is represented in the waters of baptism represents a life and a name and a person that God knew before the foundation of the world that he determined to call into union with his son. It's a name for whom Christ, while he was on the cross, was specifically dying for, specifically redeeming, specifically knowing that his work on the cross would be the foundation to bring them into the glories of his inheritance and his life. And so we rejoice and we delight in these things. Let me pray, and then we'll get ready to hear this testimony. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the warnings of Scripture, because the warnings of Scripture are there for us as well as the promises. The warnings to remind us of the foolishness of sin, the promises to capture our affections with the glories of righteousness, which are then to be captured with the glories of Christ. And so we thank you. We thank you that you have made all of us who were born into this world as fools, that you have, for those you've called to Christ, given us wisdom unto salvation, have given us life, have given us hope. And we give you all the thanks, all of the praise, all of the glory as we will for all of eternity with all of the redeemed forever. And for those who may yet still be caught in their foolishness, who find the lusters of the world far more attractive than the beauties of Christ, I pray that you'd bring them into this wisdom of salvation as well and that you who call light out of darkness will shine in their heart the light of the knowledge of you in the face of Christ. And it is to this end we pray in Jesus' name, amen.